0: who are doing big things, learn new skills, and most importantly, give you actionable steps to make a difference today. Let's go. Before we hop into this amazing episode, I wanted to take a moment to be transparent with you and explain what Social Workers Rise is and where we're going. So Social Workers Rise is more than a podcast. My vision is to create a social worker family, a place and a community where we as social workers can feel supported, empowered, and equipped to do all of the jobs that we need to do. And it's going to be continually evolving as times evolve. So this was born out of... An emotion that I had. I felt um, lonely in the field, that I didn't really have very many places to go. I didn't really have too many people to look up to as mentors and to be able to ask questions. And I didn't know where to go for to find that one-on-one connection with people that I really, really needed to ask questions, to Express how I felt, to voice my frustrations, and to even have that feedback like, hey, Catherine, I think you need to take a break. You really seem kind of burnt out right now. Like, maybe you should just, you know, reevaluate is this job worth it? So, just to have that sounding board and that really strong community of support. So, that is what I envision for Social Workers Rise. And the way that we're doing that is one through this podcast. And two, we're going to be offering ongoing learning and virtual training opportunities and and a way to create a community. So with that, we're having our, our really first big course series coming up for you. If you are a person who is striving to be a therapist, you are... Likely thinking about getting your your license to provide clinical therapy, you may be already uh, doing one-on- one clinical therapy, but don't really feel very confident in your skills and really want a stronger skill set. And also for new roles, new new graduates who are entering these roles who are, you have the basics, but you really just need, To tie it in all together, and essentially learn how to take the client through the therapeutic process. So this this five course series is actually called Clinical Essentials for the Future Therapist, and this is going to be launching this summer. I'm very excited, and I hope that you are too. If you are considering um, just getting stronger in your clinical skills this was made for you. And we are still developing it right now. So please feel free to reach out for me. I have a VIP list, a list for very interested professionals. And if you would like to get on that VIP list to be the first to know when registration opens for this event, then shoot me an email, slide up in my DMs at social workers rise on Instagram. Let me know that you're interested and I would be happy to add you to that VIP list. So for now, let's hop into this episode and get started. Hello Dr. Henderson, how are you?
1: Good, how are you?
0: I'm doing great. Should I call you Angela, Dr. Henderson? What what should I call you?
1: All oh, would be perfect. Everything would be fine. Dr. Henderson or Angela is perfectly fine.
0: Okay, sounds good. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm very excited to to talk with you and to kind of dive into this this difficult conversation. And I know it's um it's been ongoing in the black community and kind of newer in the non black community, which I'm grateful that we are able to have these conversations now and and it's being um it is being talked about and and, um, and people are beginning to do the work. So I'm very excited.
1: I'm, I'm definitely excited, too, that we can, you know, have this conversation and be able to uh, talk about not only how this affects our profession, but the clients we serve and, you know, our loved ones and um, the people that we speak with every day.
0: Definitely, definitely. So I was looking at your website and. I was just reading a little bit more about you and your history is really fascinating as far as what you've done in the social work world and for social justice um, and environmental justice. So can you tell us a little bit about your experience and what you've done?
1: Yes. So uh, my experience, I am... um, into social welfare policy and social justice and research. I really like to change systems and I'm really into systems changes. So I look at how I can work on whether it's crafting or editing different policies that are affect us uh, with regards to the social welfare system and social justice. Uh, one of the pieces of legislation that just uh, passed in Virginia that Um, I spearheaded and led uh, with um, Delegate Guzman and uh, State Senator uh, Jennifer McClellan is the Virginia version of the Social Work Reinvestment Act, the Dorothy I. Height and Whitney M. Young Jr. Social Work Reinvestment Act, um, which deals a lot with uh, salary, research, compensation, recruitment, job satisfaction and funding, but also student debt which is a big issue affecting uh, social workers. Um, And I also love to look at how physical environments, so features of the physical environments, whether it's vegetation, um, waterways, sceneries, colors, how all these different factors in our neighborhoods and communities, cities, and states can affect, depending on the zip code someone lives in, the presence of mental health conditions in people. And some of the other interesting things that I've looked at in the past with other colleagues is I was a part of the Police Minority Recruitment Project with the Virginia Office of the Attorney General. I was the principal investigator of that project where we looked at how to strengthen relationships between the community and police officers. So I'm really into the macro side of social work. Um, But I did um, in the past have some experience with micro. I feel like it's critically important um, for macro social workers to have um, some experience in the micro realm because the worst thing to do is to kind of think you know how to solve the problems of the community and not get that one on one and group interaction before you go into that policy and research arena.
0: Yeah, I can totally see how that that makes sense because I originally uh, wanted to go into macro, but just the way things turned out, I turned out to be um, micro and got my clinical license. But it's it's really opened my eyes to the needs of people who I'm trying to serve and who I'm trying to help. And what I think is their main problem, it is not necessarily what is really their main problem or what they see as the problem so it's really just you know learning how to start where the client is and how to help them and understand them which is so so powerful in natural work.
1: yes indeed that's
0: amazing so how did you get into all of this like how did you know you even wanted to be a social worker to begin with
1: well, thank you, Catherine. And and before we keep going, I just wanted to say, and I know that you're thinking the same thing, that, you know, I'd like to just extend my um thoughts and prayers to George Floyd's family, um, and, and his loved ones. Um, there was a beautiful funeral service today, um, and memorial services today, and I just wanted to to extend that um for me and you. Um, to their family.
0: Yes. Thank you so much for that. That is, yes. Thank you so much. And today is, we're recording this on June 4. So I'm really glad that there's some memorials going on. And, you know, oh, my heart goes out to the family of George Floyd. Yes.
1: Yeah. Yes. Um, and so I reflected on that because of, um, you know, I just thought about with, you know, how did I get into social work Um, and understanding that it was in high school that I started to make connections with seeing that I had a high empathetic side to how other people felt. And so um, one of my loves is art. And all the way up until like 10th grade, I thought I was going to go to art school and become an artist and And next thing I know, I took a peer helping course and the peer helping course changed my life. We were able to go to schools and help kids with tutoring and mentored youth. And we also um, worked with families that were affected by fires or uh, families that were affected by violence, just different social activities. For different families and communities in Fayetteville, North Carolina. And so, my teacher, you know, uh, Miss Gail, um, we love Miss Gail. She, you know, talked to a lot of us about that, you know, there's a career as far as uh, community service, there's different types of service, but there's also social work. And so, I was able to read up on it and see that all the different things from the values, um, connected right to me. And it was organic. It was like um, wanting to become a social worker and working to become a social worker um, really inspired me, mind, body and soul. And so I was able to go to uh, North Carolina a State University to get my bachelor's degree and receive my master's degree from Howard University and my PhD in social work from Howard.
0: Wow. So from like the mo- you were in high school and you knew that's amazing.
1: Yeah, you know, and I always at, at that point in time in high school saw that I had a knack for helping people find certain resources, um, helping people to um think about Uh, a different or or a path of solving different solutions if they were dealing with different social problems. And so, yeah, I made that connection a little early on. That's fabulous.
0: I really love that. Awesome. So, um, thank you you. for for sharing that. Um, I kind of want to dive into like the meat of, of our conversation today. So, there's a lot going on, and um, there's just—I don't even know where to start, Angela. <laughs> I, know I, to start.
1: I know it's—it's it's a lot. It's a lot, and um, you know, I definitely understand that. And you know, because like you were saying, not only are our thoughts and prayers with the George uh, George Floyd family, um, but also with Minneapolis, Minnesota, and just all families um, that um, have dealt with the loved one killed and murdered by police officers. And, and we all know that, you know, not all police officers, we have some wonderful community policing police officers that um, walk the neighborhoods side by side with community members, but there are um, police officers that need to be held accountable that commit inhumane acts against human beings. And, you know, some of the things I thought about is, uh, for instance, uh, my family was directly affected by uh, police brutality. My uncle, um, Jeffrey Samuel Judd, was killed by two police officers in 1996. Mm. And yes, and I also think about, you know, Eric Garner, Michael Brown, Sandra Bland, Philando Castile, Tamir Rice, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Aubrey. How this trauma can not only affect us as social workers, but affect our clients. There are so many people, um, not only Black, but Latino and white, that have been affected by um, inhumane and unethical um police brutality um as a result of police officers
0: mm-hmm. which i feel like is is and correct me if i'm wrong the police brutality part is is really the main focus or the goal i know that it is also you know intertwined with racism in america but is the black the black lives matter movement is or was is about police brutality and holding them accountable. Is that right?
1: Right, but one of the biggest things that we wanna do from everything that's happening is come to terms with institutional racism and discrimination in our country. And we have to hold people accountable, black people and brown people, but all people, but black people in particular, There's been centuries and decades of racism and discrimination from slavery to the Jim Crow laws, and they're not just words. You know, sometimes um, if we're not living in that person's lifestyle or their, their life and we don't walk a day in the life of how they're feeling, they're not understanding what does racism mean, what does it feel like just understanding how our ancestors were beaten, some were raped, some were killed and lynched, like Emmett Till. Um, and that has a reverberating effect, not only for the black community, but um, Latinos and American Indians. So we're talking about, like you're saying, Catherine, a systemic issue of and throughout our ecological system from the laws, the legislation, but all the stereotypes and bias that come in when we have people that may not be aware of or are aware that they have um they are racist or that they have um discriminatory views towards people Mm -hmm.
0: and i always you know try to point out that we all have a certain level of prejudice like even if you don't want to say racism We all have our certain level of prejudice where we see somebody and we are making judgments about them in our head, whether they are positive or negative. Um, And it's just the first step to be aware that we're even doing that. Some people just want to say like, oh, no, no, no. I don't do that at all. I don't see color, which is a lie.
1: Yeah, you're right. Mm hmm when you look at the criminal justice system and the different the education system the employment health and mental health systems so we can look at how um blacks and brown people or people of color uh, sentencing disparities so african americans and latinos receive higher sentencing on some of the same charges as their white counterparts um and also if we're looking at it um From an educational standpoint, we can look to see how our black and Latino youth are being suspended at a higher rate for some of the same acts that a white youth might commit. When we're looking at health and mental health, we can look at some of the childbirth mortality uh, that black women are are dealing with in our country dying um, in childbirth or during childbirth or after childbirth. And what it, it feels like for a black woman to say that they're in pain, but the pain of a black woman or the pain of a, a black male is is perceived differently than the pain of a, of a white male or a white female. What do you mean by that? So there's instances where the black women may have uh, said that there was a, a health issue or concern that they had, but it may not have been taken seriously. Mm-hmm. And that is because of certain perceptions or thought processes that may go along with what is perceived pain. We kind of talked about a week ago, uh, me and some of my colleagues, how sometimes it's perceived that um, our, pain, our pain might not be as valid as somebody else's pain because of how we look or perception of who we are. Wow, that's
0: powerful. Man, I didn't even realize that.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, and and also just being able to look at each other's lenses. So for instance, one of the things I love is, and you understand too, through all of this, we know that every police officer and every police department. Um, there are some model departments out here. We need to take a look at them, but you know, police chief um Arredondo, uh, police chief Gina Hawkins, uh Ch- police chief Sherilyn Davis and Police Chief Art Acevedo, they're doing um they're they're trying their best to to demonstrate that um that uh understanding of being empathetic and humane and trying to figure out how to address racism and um, institutional discrimination. And, And that's one of the things I wanted to talk about too, being able to understand the trauma and pain that black people are having to deal with. That trauma and pain doesn't go anywhere and it can pass on through generations and through a lifetime And how a day-to-day encounter. So when I talk about walking in the life in the shoes of another person, somebody could say well, I don't see racism. Racism isn't a problem to me. The biggest part about that statement is Mm -hmm. I and me. This is the lens that you are living in. But if you go and you sit down and you talk to another family that's living in a different zip code, or if you've Never interacted with someone who's black before, Latina before. How does it feel to be pulled over by a police officer? What kind of fear do you have? What is the perception of a group of black males that are standing on the corner together, huddled together, just talking about sports versus white boys that are doing the same thing and that are just living their life and, and trying to grow up and be successful, talking about sports the same but why is it that you know one group of boys, young boys that have not grown up to even see adulthood yet are perceived as a threat differently than than boys who are white that that are trying to do some of the same things when it comes to accomplished mm-hmm. goals
0: right yeah I know i I have this conversation a lot because there's. You have, you know, e- we each have our own experiences based on how we look and how people perceive us. It's impossible to really truly understand everybody's experience. And it's very ignorant of someone to say, well, it's not a problem for me. So it's not a problem for anyone else in America. Like, that doesn't make any logical sense at all. And I just,
1: that right. would just
0: you know, be more like just. Think about it for a second because you're you're in your little yeah. your tiny little corner of America. There is a gigantic country out there with millions of people who have their own experiences.
1: Well, and that that brings us to a great point because you know I thought about it sometimes from my mentors, but also the discussions that are taking place. There are some people at the far extreme of not understanding race relations empathy cultural competency and are so set in their ways it'll take them to see that there is a problem and that's with any problem the first step is to see and identify that it's a problem and it's it's not something that um is okay to think you know and and believe um but some of the things i was thinking about is because that's some of the beautiful things and i'm sure you saw that katherine from the protests that we've seen, there is every racial yeah. group that you could think of out protesting for uh, George Floyd and his family, but also the countless others, uh, Brianna, it, it, just trying to display that compassion and humanity. Um, so I, I think that's a, a beautiful thing um, because that brings us to the point of something that I thought about. Cultural humility, you know, social work talks about three factors of cultural humility. And one of the things that I know you do and I pride myself on is I always give myself a self-examination or a tune up each month. Um, Because, as you know, as social workers, it is hypocritical to ask other people to make changes, like to ask our clients to make changes in their lives And we can't take a look at ourselves and make those changes to our lives. And that's not to say that people aren't gonna make mistakes, nobody's perfect. And I think that's the beautiful part of being a human being is that you're going to make mistakes, but it's the part of showing and putting forth actions to display that you're willing to learn from your mistakes and commit to action. And so with cultural humility, The first part is to look at a long self-evaluation and constructive self-critique. Second is commitment to fixing power imbalances and commitment to developing partnerships with people and groups. So if somebody's trying to figure out what's next, where do I go from here? Or if they're feeling like, well, I could do better when it comes to race relations or understanding a different view and lens from mine, whether it's somebody Black, Latino, it could be um, somebody that is Indian. It's it's all about what someone um, wants to be able to hold themselves accountable and and do that exploration to help them not only grow but to do the advocacy work that they know that they're capable of doing. Mm-hmm.
0: So I'm I'm kind of curious. What does your monthly tune-up look like? What exactly do you do?
1: <laughs> Thank you for asking. I actually have like a um, dry brace board and I put up challenges and also strengths that I know that, you know, I've dealt with or deal with. Some of the challenges that I've had are now, you know, um, in the strength section. But each month I look at what is what are some things that I know I can do better? What are some things I know I can work on? Did I catch myself doing something that I know um, did not align how I wanted it to align with the social work values and ethics? Um, Or um, are there things that I know that I'm capable of doing? Or do you have some type of fear or um, reservation about something when it's really, an area of growth and opportunity, if that makes sense. So I try to just make sure I hold myself accountable to make sure that because when I first saw those cultural uh, social work values and um, competencies and, 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 and values when I was in um, college, I actually printed them out <laughs> in the computer lab and posted them up on my wall in my dorm room because I wanted to make sure that I started to remember every day what I was signing up for in the service profession of being a social Mm -hmm. worker. Definitely.
0: I I also have those posted up um, where I see them on a regular basis. They're just so um, powerful and empowering. And during times of like questioning, like, like, okay, what do I do now? What's going to be the best root or the best way to to handle this, you know, we go back to the foundation, to the basics, like, okay, well, you know, given this list of attributes, like, what is going to be most fitting for, for my core values?
1: Yeah, definitely. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because um, sometimes I watch first take, and I was watching a conversation about Drew Brees. And, you know, Drew Brees had made a statement about um, kneeling, but he did not address um, that George Floyd was murdered and how that reverberated and impacted the United States and just people um, throughout the world. And so um, one of his teammates, Malcolm Jenkins, uh, was distraught and very upset at Drew Brees But Stephen A. Smith made a great point because uh, Drew Brees apologized today. And that brought us to the part about the cultural humility. But Stephen Smith said that it was a victory for communication Mm -hmm. because you have some people that'll never apologize for anything. Um, What he said was wrong. Um, It lacked empathy and He uh, needs to make sure that he works on that. And the critical aspect of all of that is, though, that he acknowledged that he made a mistake. But in that, he he is willing to learn and grow from his mistake. And and that is kind of an example of that commitment to self-evaluation and constructive self-critique. And so he'll be able to work with Malcolm Jenkins and his other teammates to be on that road of understanding cultural humility even more and growing from that situation. So these situations are not pretty. They're tense. Um, they're, they can be emotional at times. But being able to grow from them and be a better person is really what's important mm-hmm. and what counts.
0: Which is definitely where we need to be going. And And I think really the next steps. So I really want to just make sure I understand, you know, what, where do we go from here? So like the first step is really our self-evaluation, having cultural humility, um, excuse me, being able to just critique ourselves in a way, not even critique, but maybe like areas for improvement, right? Um, And I I like the way that you, you, you provide a visual for yourself on your whiteboard. And you really discussed, you know, what are my challenges and strengths? And I think it's amazing that you have turned your challenges Thank into you. strengths over time by just being able to work on them and really focusing time on areas that, that you identify that need to be improved. I think that's really, that's really amazing. You may-
1: Thank you. And, and another area, Catherine, is self-care. So, diving into whether, so people are already having to deal Mm -hmm. with COVID, but racism or sexism and all the different issues that we've had to deal with are in these various ecological systems and cause compounded Mm -hmm. stress for people. Um, Catherine, you have your stress, I have my stress, our families have our stress. As we say in social work, We can't take care of other people if we don't take care of ourselves. So whether it's that a person needs counseling or therapy or wants to join a support group or they need to draw, ride a bike. So because I'm in psychological restoration and how the physical environment helps to improve mood and mental health, for me, going to the park restores me. Going outside for a walk is beautiful. Looking at different beautiful waterways. Some people like meditation. I love meditation too. Yoga. Um, it might be that some people going into the pool and exercising, or you know, treating themselves to a, a me time day, a self care day, or having a staycation. It's critically important to be able to not only process how we're feeling as social workers with the, um, the police brutality, the racism, institutional racism and discrimination, but also in addition to that, the COVID and other situations that are going on where it might be even childcare, employment. We have a lot of people unemployed. Um, African-Americans are deeply affected by that. So when you're dealing with that much compounded stress especially our service workers, because we want to give our 100% and more to the people of our communities. We just have to make sure that we're taking care of ourselves and loving ourselves through this time. Yes,
0: yes, definitely. That is so important. And I definitely resonated when you said the compounding stress, because I was already feeling stressed from COVID and all the changes. And I was like, okay, you know, I'm getting in the flow, like this still sucks. But I'm getting in the flow, and then this all happened, and it was—I was already on shaky ground, as I'm sure a lot of people were, and I still have my job, you know, thank God. A lot of times, Yeah. and so that's another gigantic stress, and then it kind of like the the third, you know, the it was just too much, just too much. Uh, we were already on the yes. foundation. It's it too much.
1: And then as we know, as social workers, this stress for others with, you know, them wanting, our people are going to need services and resources, and we're going to be on the front line of that. So it's imperative. And, and I, you know, I'm not perfect, like I said, but it's imperative that we're taking care of ourselves and loving on ourselves because as the rates of need go up due to COVID um, due to the different challenges that we're facing in our country, due to the, the racism or even just the, the um, ecological systems that may cause stress on people for different reasons, whether it's being able to afford the health care bills or being able to put food on the table, having to make that choice. Um, it's, it's, it's just a lot. So we want to be able to love on ourselves, uh, give ourselves stress relief so we can be able to to be on the front line and not be perfect, but be able to have um, ways to boost ourselves and keep ourselves um, Definitely. healthy. Definitely,
0: The thing I think the thing that helped me most was identifying the uh, the feelings that lead up to burnout. So when you're thinking like when you wake up and you're just like, Oh, I just can't today. Or you start to feel stressed out and overwhelmed every single day. You're physically tired, you become apathetic, like, oh, you know, just whatever. Let me just do this so I can get it over with. And you're not really caring and trying right. not passionate or enjoying it. Those are all like my little red flags for me to know, like, okay, I need to take a step back and just practice my self care and get myself back to the best Catherine and the best social worker that I know I can be.
1: Yeah, you're right, Catherine, because, you know, one of the things, um, because I got my PhD, my mind works like 200 miles an hour. And my body, at times, I used to drag my body along, and my body would be trying to tell me, look, I need a break, or look, I need you to slow down. And, you know, so it's those little cues on those gut feelings, or those those um, things that we know might be off that we need to make sure that we like you said, that we tackle and we, sure. and we don't get burnt out. You also
0: mentioned, as, as far as the um, the things that we can do, like going forward, where do we go from here, you mentioned um, about power imbalances. Can you talk, what, what do you mean about that? Can you talk yes. about that?
1: Yes, well, within the different systems that we have, the different ecological systems, so We have the school systems, but the main system that is out and in front right now is the um, criminal justice system. So when we talk about power imbalances, it cannot be that four police officers or police officers in any position or even social workers, because we'll put ourselves in that same situation. We're service members as well, can kill someone. And someone else that is not in a service situation could kill someone or hurt someone or murder someone and not be held accountable. Um, We have to make sure that we make structural and system changes, not only um, at the policy level, but also hold people accountable. So we know that in every service arena, we have the people who are ethical, who work very hard every day, um, who love the people and are by the people. And then we have people who um, are serving our communities. You know, someone said it so passionately the other day, protect and serve. And the, when we talk about the power imbalances, we have to address people who are being unethical, who have a long history, a long history Of violating human rights, a long history of practicing unethical behavior and hold them accountable. It cannot be that people are settled, have settlements outside of court or within court, or that a person's unethical practices or um, behavior is not addressed. So when we talk about the imbalance of power, if we know that we have certain people in certain positions that are not ethical and are behaving in an inhumane matter, that reverberates into the policies. Um, that also can reverberate into the different political officials um, that we, we have, that we, we vote for. Um, If they are carrying those practices with them one place, they'll carry them with themselves in the criminal justice system, within the employment system, within the medical system. So when we talk about imbalance of power also, if we're talking about cultural humility, how are laws affecting one group of people or various groups of people differently than others? If we've looked at not only from the, the, the crack and the cocaine differences in in prison sentencing. Um, But also it can't be that because someone has a certain type of income or that they live in a certain area code or zip code that they're treated differently than others. Or because someone can afford an attorney and the other one cannot, you have two kids, two boys or two girls with marijuana charges, use of marijuana. But because they come from different sides of the track or because they may not have certain type of representation, so we have to look at are there certain people that hold positions in our systems that are, when we look through the data, um, you can see a striking balance between sentencing and sentencing based on racial groups. Are there different systems that are set up um, and legislation and policies that we need to address um, that can be um, either dismantled or adjusted um, to make sure that they are not uh, discriminatory and uh, provide provide heartache for one racial group or the
0: mm-hmm. other? Okay, that makes sense. Thank you. Yeah, that. That completely makes sense. Um, and then the third area that you mentioned was create an alliance with groups. Um, you know, where where do we even start with that? Like, what kind of groups should we be looking at? Like, where where should we even start with that? And and then you know, what how is that going to help us?
1: Um, I feel like one of the things I also saw that was coming up is that. You know, some people were weighing out is protesting just as effective as policy or, you know, is there different things that people can do? And my response to that is everybody has a role to play Um, from the passion, the love and the energy at that micro level of meeting new people, seeing that um, people have some of the same interests of you. What differences do we have? What um, similarities do we uh, share? All of those things help us build bridges. Um, Also donating, you know, it could be that someone feels like their best uh, way of supporting uh, this cause is through donations. Some of the other things that we can do is voting. Mm. So voting critical, and not only, I know some people may have, you know, already heard it, but it is critical, not only at the local and and state level, but the federal level, but especially at the local um, and state level, uh, because that can affect the policies that are directly affecting you. Um, and so also, you know, I look at it as um, social workers, as far as us being involved also in strategic planning. Um Some of the things I look at is that we do a great job of being enablers and also brokers uh, when it comes to talking to our clients who are affected by police brutality, but also talking to the police officers that really are trying to form relationships. So, just putting it plain, we have some people that are scared to even interact or walk by a police officer. We have some police officers. Um, that may be uncomfortable because they don't want to make that person feel scared. So how do we, how do we as social workers and social workers are really good at listening, but also building bridges, helping people build bridges. So I feel that that'll be very helpful. Um, We can also look at um, working with elected officials, um, also working with the different social work organizations. So, um, Angelo McLean and Mitt Joyner are doing a fabulous job with NASW, also working with the National Association of Black Social Workers. Dr. Renata Hedrington-Jones is doing a fabulous job, uh, CSWE, Chris, um, and just different service projects that people are interested in. So, for instance, I work on in, on service projects with my mentor who is Ivy McGregor. She's a global philanthropist and director of social responsibility for Be Good. And I work with her team and I'm a part of Ivy Inc. Source, but we do a different service activities. And so I think that that's important too. Everybody has different things and, and various talents that bring out their gifts. So so what service activities, whether I'm a, you know, a micro social worker, it might be that I start having support groups for the families that may have um, lost a loved one or work with people in our communities um, to be able to have the different support groups Um, and also educating our clients on their rights. What rights do I have? Um, Also, working with the police officers and the police departments on the hiring and screening processes, because that's going to be important when we talk about um, policies and laws. Um, I'd also say that um, Emerald Garner, who is Eric Garner's um, daughter, uh, worked with uh, Representative Hakeem Jeffries and Senator Kirsten Gillibrand. Um, to get the Eric Gardner Excessive Use of Force Prevention Act um, passed in in Congress. So it's been introduced in the House. Um, Senator Gillibrand is working to introduce it in the Senate. So it'll be critically important for not only all the social work organizations, but social workers to come together and to figure out how we can support pieces of legislation like that.
0: I love it. I love it. That's so many ways that we can, you know, as individuals just create alliances with different groups who are similar than us. Also have some differences too that we can learn from. I know another way that I've seen is my, the company I work for, they have started ongoing discussions about, um, about race race relations and and their experiences and it's a voluntary virtual group that they're going to be holding every month and it's just a safe space for people to come together to have these difficult conversations to show grace and also to learn from one another. So all of those ways are are very very powerful and I kind yeah. of just thought
1: yeah and I
0: was just thinking, you know, there's I hear so much like what what is going on with social work what are we doing why what are we doing now you just have to look for it so there's so much going on but you're not going to see it on tv or on the radio like you have to really go look for it look at these groups look what's going on just google any kind of any kind of area that you're passionate about that you want to get more information on and I
1: guarantee there's
0: people doing the work and there there is a place for you
1: Yeah, and there's also police social workers, so that's an area of social work that's growing, um, different law firms to team up with, and even um, being a professor, um, you know, working with our students, working with the universities on different research plans, or um, connecting that research uh, at the state level, and also working with the churches, so like you said, with everybody having so many different talents, um, as social workers and non-social workers, there's so many ways to work, not only on the micro, but the macro level, but to find how you feel like, how each person feels like they can best fit in to that team or fit in and help the people in the community. Also, students, empowering the students, um, you know, it's so beautiful to see them out protesting, taking on the leadership roles. So how can we empower our students and the youth um, to, to, to dream big and to also um, have a seat at the table when we talk about these different policies and research? Yes, yes, definitely. So powerful.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Henderson. Where can people find you and find more information about the work that you're doing and, and get in contact with you?
1: Well, thank you so much, Catherine, it's an honor. Um, and thank you also to uh, Social Justice Solutions, Social Justice Solutions, um, Courtney and Matthew. Um, thank you for everything, they're doing a wonderful job. So that's a other, another social service oriented organization. Um, people can find me at Dr. Angela Chanel, that's Dr. Angela, S-H-E-N-E-L-L on Instagram and Twitter. And also my website is DrAngelaSHenderson.com. Awesome.
0: Thank you, Dr. Henderson. It was a complete pleasure. I'm so glad that we had this conversation. And thank you so, so much.
1: Thank you. It's truly an honor. Have a wonderful you day, too. Kevin. Bye. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Social Workers Rise. If you loved it, write a review and give us five stars wherever you listen to your podcast. This just helps other people just like you find us and join our community. Also, I would love to connect with you on Instagram. You can find me at Social Workers Rise. I can't wait to
1: see you next week. Bye.